I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. The only reason that I became a religious person and the only reason that I became a rabbi is because I had had an experience with what we call expanded states of consciousness. Um, when I was 15 years old, I, I was on a Israel trip. I was at an archaeological dig. Um, you know, I was raised Jewish. I had a bar mitzvah. We were a part of the Jewish community, but spirituality or mysticism or, uh, you know, the, the soul, any of these things were not part of the conversation. It was just our community and what we did. Um, as, as much as we did. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club Show. We are back for a new season of podcasts, and I'm very happy about this and very excited. My guest today is Zach Kamenetz. Zach is a rabbi, community leader, and aspiring psychedelic chaplain based in Berkeley, California. He holds an MA in Biblical Literature and Languages from UC Berkeley and the Graduate Theological Union and received his rabbinic ordination in 2012. He's also the founder of the Shefa Foundation for Psychedelic Therapy, grounded in Jewish spirituality. He was part of a psilocybin study that dosed clergy of various traditions with psilocybin the psychoactive compound found in psychedelic mushrooms and psilocybin mushrooms, to be precise. This conversation is not only exploring the new territory between psychedelics and religion, in his case, Judaism. Zach and I talk the future of psychedelic therapy, and in Zach's case, that could mean Is there a Jewish psychedelic therapy with a Jewish set and setting? And that's something that Zach is very interested in. We talk epigenetic trauma and experiences, the new openness towards religions and psychedelics, and why there might be the new health club Schule one day in Germany. But now please enjoy Zach and the show. Welcome, Zach Kamenetz to the new Health Club podcast. I'm very excited about this um, because it's really such a new topic that we will address in the next hour. I don't think most people have ever heard of it. So, um, and besides that you're a rabbi, which you are, right? I mean, you're a yes. proper rabbi. We can a talk proper. about that later, a proper rabbi. <laughs> so I would say that you are probably the first kind of, at the moment, most discussed rabbi who would actually 
work on bringing psychedelics back into Judaism or into the Jewish religion. I mean, Judaism is like maybe the bigger picture, but let's say the, um, the new emerging Jewish psychedelic renaissance, this is your topic, right? I mean, yes. one could say that. So of course, um, how did this all start and how did you get into the whole new science of psychedelics? Well, I think psychedelics have been part of everybody's life in one way or the other. Um, when I was a kid, I was receiving messages in Southern California where I grew up about, um, you know, not taking LSD or, you know, there, there are stickers out there that have LSD that will kill you or scramble your brain. Or when I grew up that ecstasy will change your DNA forever and I'll never be able to have children or mushrooms will turn you into a, a cup of orange juice in your brain and you'll be in a hospital thinking that you can never sit down because then you'll spill over. So I was frightened to death about drug use mm -hmm. and I, I stayed away from it and I, it never came up. It was, there was never an opportunity to take psychedelics. Um, and I was okay with that. And one day someone forwarded me uh, an email that they were looking a, a study, uh, a proper laboratory study was looking for subjects um, to take psilocybin in a research environment, a safe and supported research environment. And because I had never taken psychedelics before, it was naive um, that I was accepted into the program. And that was the first time I had ever really made contact with it. And those sessions that I had in that environment were so profound and powerful um, that not only did they have important and lasting effects on my own life and the way that I think about my, my life, but I'm naturally curious. I started doing all of this reading about the history of uh, the, you know, the first wave of indigenous and native use, the second wave of psychedelic research in this country and in Europe. Um, and then started understanding that my participation in this study was part of what people are calling the third wave. And I really became very interested, concerned, excited, nervous that if psychedelic therapy and whatever lies beyond therapy is going to be made available in the next years, what will be the impact on religion, religious people? theology, religious ritual. And I just did not hear voices helping me figure that out. And so I kind of took a leap and said, I guess I have to start this conversation um, out loud and maybe not start the conversation. There are many other people having it, but bringing more voices together into uh, a, a community, right? To start having a public conversation versus people doing it in private or individually. Okay. So, and then you took part in, in the study you were explaining, right? And I mean, yeah. I think as far as I understand, it's a study that was also for people with, let's say, religious like clergy, you could say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess that there were also like Catholic priests maybe involved. I imagine so. I think, I imagine religious leaders of, of all stripes. Yeah. So, and I mean, as we know now from, from, Brian Waresco's book, which focuses a little bit on, on the Greek and Catholic culture, 
a rituals that mm-hmm. to un, to kind of undertake rituals that would actually lead to religious practices that we know today that but we never know that maybe psychedelic experiences were involved so but of course in Judaism there's also a tradition of kind of spiritual experiences as far as i know now that are related also to maybe psychedelic experiences so you undergoing this study did you were you in touch before with the let's say with the knowledge around this or was it something that you discovered let's say first of all on a very private level because that's what a lot of people actually are saying about their psychedelic experiences that it brings them back to a spiritual moment in their life with or without belonging to a religion yeah well i think my story is is mine and so it's unique that way the only reason that i became a religious person and the only reason that i became a rabbi is because i had had an experience with what we call expanded states of consciousness um when i was 15 years old i i was on a Israel trip. I was at an archaeological dig. Um, you know, I was raised Jewish. I had a bar mitzvah. We were a part of the Jewish community, but spirituality or mysticism or, uh, you know, the, the soul and any of these things were not part of the conversation. It was just our community and what we did um, as, as much as we did. But I had this unrehearsed completely out of nowhere experience where I felt my mind open up. I felt contact with what I associated with the divine, with God, God's self. Um, it was brief. It was powerful. It was, it was life-changing. And the minute after that, I knew that I, I had to be an observant Jew. I started covering my head and keeping kosher and, um, observing Shabbat, the Sabbath, because of this one unrehearsed moment. And so people talk about this with regard to psychedelics. You know, that is like a repeatable and reliable way to access these states of consciousness. But there are, of course, many other ways to achieve these, these states. And some of them we don't ask for. And we have these stories all the time. You know, Paul on the road to Damascus, right? He's just, he's on a horse and is blinded by a light and then has a new charge and has a completely new direction. We have uh, spontaneous uh, accounts of prophecy in the Hebrew Bible, right? People who uh, we don't know anything about them until boom, their minds or the sky opens up and they make contact with this commanding voice. And so when I, became part of this research study, I had already had this moment in my life. So having psychedelics, I could actually compare it to uh, what I had experienced prior to that. I don't know if someone hasn't had that kind of what we call endogenous, like the thing happening within you without something happening externally. Um, I had had an endogenous spiritual experience like this that changed the course of my life. And then I had one that I took a pill and had a different kind of experience. So I'm able to kind of balance them or compare them. Okay. So, but I mean, 
you practice as a rabbi right now, right? I mean, one could I, actually, if I would be converting, I would have to knock on your door 12 times. So that's the job you're doing, right? Uh, yeah, so we, we'd love to talk, Dan. I'd love to talk. <laughs> I just noticed from Sex and the City, by the way, that you have to knock 12 times. Is that, is that what they say in Sex and the City? When you, when you want to convert. I don't think, I think that might be uh, a little bit of a dramatic effect. I think uh, if someone asks three times, then you know that they're serious. Uh, you can't, you don't turn them away more than three times, but okay. you should try to dissuade them. Okay. So, and in what way does, or did your, let's say, psilocybin experience change, let's say, your job or how you talk to people, how you, maybe you look at them in a different way, because I think that's a really, that's a thing that really happens after psychedelic experiences that you become either like more compassionate with people or you kind of engage with a certain kind of people you don't engage anymore with before there's even a conflict arising. Maybe, you know, these are nonspecific amplifiers of the human psyche as Stan Groff and others say. So, you know, if you're a neo-Nazi and you take LSD, you might become a better neo-Nazi, right? <laughs> What does that mean exactly? How is What that is a better neo-Nazi? I, I, I mean, you have to ask them, but um, maybe, maybe your orientation, you are so convinced about, you know, the purity of white ancestry Yeah. or the mission of white nationalism or, you know, of a white God, that there's no doubt in your mind anymore that this is the, the true path. So there's the possibility for whatever your orientation or your intention to be amplified. If you hope to be more compassionate, if you hope to be more peaceful, if you hope to be more spiritual, that might happen through your integration and meaning-making process, but it might not. People could also have terrible experiences, confusing, painful, and even if they're working with a therapist or they're working with a guide, they might not so easily be able to have it mean something beautiful or powerful. So just to kind of put that out there. But for me, in my experience, You know, I had already been doing a lot of work with uh, mindfulness, specifically with mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, and trying to use that as a platform to talk about big Jewish ideas, big Jewish questions, and, and practice um, for, for better living and for feeling at home in the universe. That was already my orientation. Mm -hmm. What I think taking psychedelics helped me clarify, you know, I'm a lover of Jewish wisdom. I'm sitting in front of all of these books that you can see on the Zoom call. I love words. I love rabbis. I love thinkers. I love uh, philosophers and poets. And I think that after taking psychedelics, what changed within me was, you know, if I open up a book about Kabbalah, about the Jewish mystical path or Hasidut, right? This um, ecstatic movement uh, that happened in Eastern Europe, starting with the Baal Shem Tov and you know, continuing today. The experiences that they have been speaking about and writing about 
that I had read and, and loved, I felt a great amount of distance between what they were talking about and my ability to access them. You know, it felt like dessert. It's like, okay, I'm a lover of texts. I read them. I read them for inspiration or values or for guidance or for messages, or I read about Jewish law and, you know, how do I, how do I maximize my Sabbath Shabbat practice? How do I, you know, keep kosher in a way that is an expression of my values, but never thinking about supernal realms and that I could actually access them or that they could have an impact on my life in a real way. Um, and having an experience with psychedelics that those two moments, right? My first trip being beautiful, colorful, whatever full, it was full. And my second experience was darkness, emptiness, the void, and confusing. And to put those two together to feel like, oh my God, there are these, at least these two brilliant poles of human experience that I have now within my memory and my body. And when I am reading these spiritual geniuses, that I can actually be able to live inside their words, that I could actually relate to the things that they're saying, even though it happened through a psychedelic experience. And maybe probably for them, it was not, right? They were just natural or trained mystics uh, without any use of plant medicine. It becomes much more of an alive tradition for me. Okay. What I thought about when I, I mean, you have been undertaking these two trips and then you, like I said, come back to you being a rabbi. So how do you talk to people about this? Yeah. Like, or do you talk to people about this or not at all? That I do. come to you. Okay. Mm-hmm. I definitely talk about, um, if people want to hear about my experience, I will talk to them about it for sure. Um, what I want to communicate to more Jewish people and maybe to all people is that I think that there is something about Judaism that has always for me. And I think for others has had a missing piece that we are presented mostly as young people, but also as converts or people who are married to Jews, um, right? That there are all of these exoteric trappings, right? We've got Shabbat, or we have keeping kosher, or we have, you know, all of these rituals and all of these values and all of these good ideas. Um, and, you know, it's a, like a very pretty box of things. And it helps people find meaning in their lives. It's a wonderful thing. It's called a religion. But there is an aspect of Jewish religion that is ancient, that is really not part of people's consciousness. And that is that our practices, our rituals, the mind states that can be engendered through practice, um, the mystical aspect of our religion, the ability to see that there is a world beyond this one that we can see in our eyes. There is a world inside us that we can feel that is beyond our normal perception that has in some ways been uh, removed either forcibly or complicitly. I think a lot of that has to do with Jews making contact with um, Christian neighbors that did not have a mystical orientation and they wanted to become citizens of these nation states. So they allowed, you know, these kind of more far out ways of being so that they can conform to their, to their surroundings, which is completely understandable. 
we've also, you know, and I know that this has been a focus of yours in the past, we have lost through pogroms and genocide and uh, generations of violence, we have lost our spiritual ancestry in a lot of ways. Just great rabbis, great teachers, great students, natural mystics, men and women. And we have a remnant, a holy remnant, but a small sliver of, of the work, the literature, the practices that have existed. And so I think now we are in recovery mode and need to do work to bring that back in. I think the, the loss of that mystical element is also part of intergenerational trauma. Absolutely. And I think yeah. that the healing that we can do, not only for our own traumas or our families or our families' families, um, is not only then just about violence or sexual trauma or all of these other things, displacement, but also to come back to that hot, burning, mystical core, which has animated Jewish religious experience since its inception. Well, also, I mean, let's say here in Germany, if you would say what comes to mind when you think of Jews, I would assume that 80% would say, well, the Holocaust, like this is the topic. So, and this is exactly what you're saying. I totally agree because I have to tell you, if I said this in, in the call with Adriana, but my first really big psilocybin experience was actually at Synthesis in Amsterdam in the trip, I spent the whole time in Auschwitz with the rabbi walking around the camp. And he said to me like, okay, you're not Jewish. And we like that. <laughs> We're actually very happy you're not Jewish because we need exactly somebody like you. And I'm just quoting the rabbi. I, I didn't make it up. He said to me like, we need somebody like you to bring back the Jews to their old glamour and that not everybody keeps thinking about those pajama pants from the camps. Can you tell me what he looked like? Yeah. He was very tall, um, a beard, and blue eyes, and super empathic. Like, to be precise, it was him and me being um, Tinkerbell, you know, the, the fairy from Peter Pan. I understand. So, and then he said to me, well, and... and um, if you help us to achieve this, we will help you with your business. And it was so interesting that it was a very clear communication and um, in a way that, I mean, like in, in, let's say outside of a trip, you would just, you would never come up with an idea like that, right? And I think after this, I realized that how much kind of narratives around Judaism or Jewish culture is the Holocaust. And that's then, that's it, because Jews got killed in camps, and that's it. So, I mean, we're talking rather Germany now. And my perception is that because now psychedelics come in the game, this is actually a possibility to um, really show what Judaism really is besides this tragic, horrible, um, yeah, I don't even know how to call it, actually. Is this something crazy oh, that I'm saying? Oh, you're, first of all, I really appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, I want to like give just some like time and space to 
thinking about that rabbi with his blue eyes, you know, and who he, who he is and who he was, um, you know, as your guide. Yeah. And I think that what you're, what you're pointing at that, you know, Auschwitz and genocide has become the center of the conversation around Jews and Judaism for the past plus 70 years. Um, Exactly. Or now about the state of Israel and Zionism. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is not a new conversation. You know, in 2013, my teacher, Rabbi David Hartman, he wrote a really fundamental essay called Auschwitz or Sinai. Oh, wow. I never heard of yes. this. Interesting. And, yeah. you know, in the light of renewed Jewish independence and sovereignty in the state of Israel, that he wanted to ask, you know, what will be the dominant narrative of the Jewish people moving into the 21st century? He says, one of the fundamental issues facing the new spirit of maturity in Israel is, should Auschwitz or Sinai, Mount Sinai, where the Jewish people were given the Torah, be the orienting category shaping our understanding of the rebirth of the state of Israel. You know, what he means is, are we going to build this state on trauma or are we going to build this state on revelation? What mission are we going to carry out? You know, and of course, I I think it's not a surprise for people who know David Hartman that, you know, his, the model of Sinai, he says, the model of Sinai awakens the Jewish people to the awesome responsibility of becoming a holy people. At Sinai, we discover the absolute demand of God. We discover who we are by what we do. Sinai calls us to action, to moral awakening, to living constantly with challenges of building a moral and just society, which mirrors the kingdom of God in history. Woof. Okay. So in some ways that that's my mission as well. Like it's the same, but different because I think as people who start to undergo these kinds of experiences, I think it's of course, Auschwitz and Sinai. We have to take our suffering seriously. We have to, take it seriously and actually find ways of healing. Um, Not just either celebrating it as like, yes, here we are. Here's our trauma. Isn't that fascinating? Um, But also, but take the work of healing and not just treating the symptoms um, in a serious way to also continue to reach back to our foundational moment as a people which is what David Hartman is talking about, moral awakening, discovering what it means to be a holy people, humility and openness to the demands of self-transcendence. I want a world that is built on both of them, but right, just like my two trips, (laughs) um, the fullness and the light, the darkness and the void. We must take all of human existence uh, together and build into the future that way and not leave out some aspect of it. I mean, there was this article about you called Can Psychedelics Heal the Jewish People? This rabbi is exploring the question. The headline is like, oh my God, that's like a, that's a job. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, where would you start with this? And at the same time, like if I read the headline, I was like, what, 
But I mean, there's something beyond that they have to be healed. There are other things that, so it's not like just the whole healing, let's say a religion of people who need to be healed because Catholics need to be healed too, to be honest. Everyone. In a different way. <laughs> yeah, everyone. But the Catholic religion is always kind of tailored around like, oh, you just can't, you do something bad and you confess and then you're good, for example. And um, of course, you're not good because this is just working in you. And it also, um, let's say, invites you to become a liar because you would actually lie in, in, in the confession, which I did as a... Mm child because I didn't want to get in trouble. So I lied to the priest and all this kind of strange other psyche coming out of being Catholic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you said also like what I found very interesting when you said, um, your aim is to rekindling a type of fire that we haven't had in a long time in, in the Jewish religion. So can you talk a little bit about this fire? What do you exactly mean by that? I am inspired, like many others, by the work of Brother David Steindelrast, who is a monk and philosopher and writer. And he has an, a very important essay called The Mystical Core of Organized Religion. And, you know, many others have pointed this out, certainly in the history of religion, Rudolf Otto and Eliade and, uh, and others, even Carl Jung, etc. But essentially that the point of inspiration for a religious movement happens out of a expanded state of consciousness, right? To move out of present reality into a larger picture, contact with absolute consciousness, contact with uh, the divine voice, the divine presence, and that fiery moment where, as he says, you make contact with major concepts in an embodied way, like truth or goodness or beauty. Um, I would even want to add, you know, darkness, pain, suffering. Right? He's only on the light side. I also want to include the dark side, like, you know, your moment or like my moment. And through in the encounter in such a vulnerable way, in such a real embodied way, what those that contact with those major ideas or major feelings through our minds, we get things like doctrine, we get things like ethics, we get things like ritual to try to integrate, right? We've had these profound moments of insight, we have these profound moments of encounter, and we want to hold on to them in some way. We try to put language toward them, we try to create practices which anchor them in our everyday. So that happens, of course, in the individual level that, you know, that's like a, a model of psychedelic therapy. But I think he says, actually, that is how most religions are formed. We have someone like Moses and the people standing at the foot of or at the top of Mount Sinai. They see sounds, they hear colors, right? There's this synesthesia that happens. They hear the commanding voice of the divine, or they hear the silence of the divine in some interpretations. And from that moment, then Jewish religion is born. How do we continue to hear that voice or that silence every day? We you know, put on these black boxes on our heads and, and on our arms 
to feel the divine presence, to wear Torah on our bodies. We keep Shabbat, we cease from creative action for 25 hours to live inside a divine reality of creativity and divine rest. And he says that over time, right, we only focus on those externalities. We only focus on those integration practices and we forget the original experience of that core. And so what I'm hoping for is that more people will recognize, first of all, that they have encounters with expanded consciousness all the time, and they just don't name it that way, right? It's just Tuesday. Um, But they are constantly going in and out of different states of consciousness, number one. Number two, that Judaism is a vehicle to reach those different kinds of states of consciousness. You know, we have largely, I think, in whatever denomination, that we have focused a lot on either the ritual or the furniture or the synagogue, right? What's going to bring people in or what's Jewish continuity or what are Jewish values and not thinking too much about the internal murmurings of the individual experience and how to awaken something deep within mind and heart and body. Um, People are doing some good jobs at it, right? There's a lot of Jewish meditation that is happening right now. There's amazing music that is happening right now. There's just gatherings, at least before COVID, Mm -hmm. that were happening right now that were focused on that. But I think there's a fundamental block toward that is inside the ego, that is inside the individual mind, that there needs to be some release of the I, me, mine narrative that I think psychedelics can help us understand more, but it it isn't required to do psychedelics in order to get there. And that's why, yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, I kept thinking about this doctor in the 60s, um, Jan Bastians, you know, the psychiatrist who... Yes helped survivors of camps with LSD therapy. And I mean, there are many articles around about him now again, because this was probably the first person who actively focused on, on survivors. So, and now we have a little bit of a, I'm not going to say a new school, but, but Rachel Yehuda is actually working with this and she was on the podcast too. So do you think that, let's say, if you're under the fast track to become a psychedelic rabbi, <laughs> you're going to be maybe the, the most famous one very soon. So who knows? But I mean, I'm wondering, so do you think that this would be also something that a psychedelic rabbi would be able to address in a, I'm not going to say in a better way, but in a very different way, if somebody comes in as a kind of third generation from a survivor family suffering from depression, which is often the case, as you know, through Dr. Yehuda's work. So do you see your work also in that context? And if so, like, how do you think about that right now? Yeah, that's a great question. When I read Shiviti, A Vision, the the book by Yechiel Denor, one of the most famous Jewish patient of, um, 
of Dr. Bastian's. You know, he wrote an account of his of his treatment. The trip reports of him seeing visions of the throne of Adonai, mm-hmm. of yud heh of Yahweh, at the top of Auschwitz, right? Just to think about that for a moment, to think about the chariot of the divine floating over Auschwitz, right? He describes over the head of a guard, right? That is a profound image. That's a profound image where he is able to experience it and write about it. But in, at least in, in his account, in this book, Shiviti, a vision, he is not able to relate it to his therapist, a non-Jewish, a Gentile, you know, very good, decent person who is focused on healing. But I think that there is, my interpretation of this is that there is a gap between therapist and patient. And I do wonder that if Denur was in the room with a rabbi, a rabbi who was, or a Jewish educator, or, you know, a, a Jewish chaplain, who could be there not only as a physical and, and calming presence, but he could say, I saw the vision of Shiviti. I saw the vision of this very familiar image from, from Jewish culture, the lions and the name of, of the divine and you know, the, the throne and, and the, the crown. To be able to describe it without having to go into too much background detail. I think it would have been very different from him. You know, like for me, if I'm looking for a therapist, I'm looking for a Jewish therapist. I don't want to spend time having to dedicate like, okay, I'm going to teach you all about Shabbat right now. And then I'm going to tell you about how hard it is um, for some aspect of it. Like I want to skip over that. And I think what I'm learning from uh, in the psychedelic world about issues with people of color uh, issues with LGBTQI plus people, right? That people are starting to talk about cultural specific care and that people want to be able to think about their own community's needs and their own culture's needs in a very focused way. So I think that um, when I think about being a psychedelic rabbi or when I think about being a Jewish psychedelic assisted therapist for Jewish patients, I think that that's kind of the therapeutic alliance that I'm thinking about is that we have this in common. We have this cultural ancestry that if through intergenerational trauma or just because of, you know, the archetypes that are passed through us or childhood memories that there isn't the time that we don't need the time to explain what is the Torah, for example, uh, or, um, or what it's like being in synagogue and being disinterested or having a Jewish parent who is constantly angry um, because of their own trauma or wounding, you know, in and through Judaism. And that we can then spend the time on the content of the experience itself. And the therapist or the, the chaplain is able to readily draw from our tradition in order to give these patients, these people who are looking for this experience to make meaning in their life uh, readily. So yes, we want to be helping Jewish people through Jewish tradition, addressing Jewish trauma. 
And we also, if there are therapists or guides who are not Jewish, we also want to be able to create and provide resources for them to be able to understand their patients better, what they're going through, their past, their history. Okay. I had a similar topic with, um, do you know Dr. Monica Williams? I don't. She works also with MAPS, I think, and she's also a, a clinical psychiatrist, a ah, psychologist, yes, and um, she works in terms of Black people, African-American culture. Mm -hmm. And she even said that, let's say, if a Black person has a certain experience in their psychedelic experience that they undergo in, in terms of working on their depression, if there wouldn't be the right therapist who knows, let's say, the suffering of that person, the context of, let's say, a daily dose of racism, um, that even could lead at some point to harming the person undergoing the psychedelic experience because they would not be understood in a moment that is maybe exactly the moment they need to go through, like, like you said. And it makes more and more sense to me that, um, yeah, that this is something in the next couple of years, that this will become almost like impossible to ignore again. Yes. And I think for Jewish people, um, at least I'll speak from my direct experience and not for all Jewish people right now. You know, until I started doing this work, And thinking about this and learning a lot from people who have been doing this for a very long time, never could have expressed some parts of my family history or narrative as trauma. The fact that I don't know my great-grandparents' names, the fact that I don't know where they came from, the fact that I have no traditions. That is a type of trauma. That is a type of being cut off from my own history. Right? And, and that's, that's not everybody's story. It's fine. That you know, my family was in such dire financial situations coming from Europe and then settling in New York and then Southern California, that the past was a luxury, that they were hustling just to be able to live that Judaism itself, the content of Judaism, which was too expensive to be Jewish. Yeah. Wow. To have a, you know, just to have a synagogue membership, why do they need my money and the skepticism, the pain of that. And just to be American and just to be able to survive, right. That was their focus. And then thank God that they were able to do that. But, you know, to be able to, Think about like, well, I have no history. I have no past. You know, the traditions that I have in my life now are the traditions that I have created for myself from my community or from the books of dead people or, you know, the ones that we've created on our own as a, as a family. And I think that I would want to have something like a spiritual or cultural or ethnic based therapy in order to address those things in a real way and not to be convinced that those aren't real issues. Cause that actually did happen to me in my, in the study, something that I was 
really wrestling with and wanted to address in my intention was my relationship to commandedness. Right? There's this idea in Jewish religion that right, there's this commanding voice, right? It's called chiyuv, um, obligation, right? You're obligated to participate in Jewish law and Jewish ritual, right? It's not just like a good deed or a nice thing. It's like, oh, you're a, you're a citizen of Judaism. You abide by the laws, at least in, in some denominations. And I was really wrestling with this at that time. I wanted help to reconnect to that aspect of my practice. And ever since I started talking about all of this publicly, a lot of people, Jewish people from around the world, have reached okay. out to me to talk about their psychedelic experiences and are looking for advice. That's actually why I started the organization that I started. Oh. So, for example, I have got a lot of religious people. Um, who after having some experience with psychedelics, either with a guide or on their own, that they have a powerful experience and then have a feeling like, well, why do I need to have a daily practice? Why do I need to be observant in the first place? What, you know, what is the role of mitzvot, the commandments in my life now at this point? Like, why do any of this? I don't want to have those people not have a voice that can understand in all of the depth and complexity to be their conversation partner. Ever since I started talking about my experiences um, more publicly and starting to talk about how important this is to really start focusing on, many people from around the world, Jewish people, have reached out to me to talk about their psychedelic experiences, either you know, that they've had a guided experience or on their own. and. You know, just for example, when um, religious people, observant people, you know, people who um, have the Torah and commandments uh, as part of their daily life, often I hear, I had this profound experience. I had an encounter with God, <laughs> or um, I just experienced my life and the world in a new way. Why should I follow the commandments anymore? Suddenly, you've lived an observant life all of your life. It's your community. It's your daily practice. It's everything. And suddenly, something happens in your mind. I want them to be able to have a rabbi or a Jewish chaplain or someone who understands all of the complexities and depth of what that means for them in their life. and. I don't want to miss the opportunity for them to integrate that experience or that question as fully as possible, right? It, for me, it's not, oh, okay, well, you don't want to be observant anymore. Fine. So then try that out. Let's explore that. How long have you actually been feeling that way? What would that mean in real life? What about your observance has already been something that you have been wondering about exploring and your reasons why? I want people to feel held in a Jewish setting to be able to explore that um, and to not just like have that be a thought and then to not follow up with it in, in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So that's why I have created this organization called Shefa, which is essentially Jewish psychedelic support. Uh, we offer integration circles for Jewish people that happen monthly, but will be expanding soon. 
Um, we do advocacy and education uh, with Jewish leadership and in Jewish communities about what is the psychedelic renaissance, what is Jewish therapy, what does Jewish psychedelics look like. Um, and finally, we want to create these resources for Jewish therapists and, and therapists who aren't Jewish but are going to be treating Jewish patients in order to have them have some cultural competency with whatever might be coming up, either you know, Holocaust trauma or displacement in North African and uh, Arab countries, um, you know, wounding from the religion itself or you know, any other trauma that might come up that people would associate with Judaism. And uh, we want to eventually, you know, in some ways, you know, you're creating the new health club. Um, we're thinking about what would the psychedelic synagogue actually look like if rabbis or chaplains had the ability to administer these therapies either for people with diagnoses or that are, you know, that are well, but are just looking for spiritual development. Yeah. yeah. What would, what would a Jewish set and setting actually look like? Um, you know, how much intervention are we actually interested in? You know, is it enough to have a beautiful Jewish space, but no, uh, no preparation? Is it important to have a rabbi in the room? but not do any integration work with Jewish ritual? Or are we going full on? You know, when we do, when we do preparation, we're learning Jewish texts and to do spiritual practice. When we do journeying, we're using Jewish music and uh, Jewish symbols inside the space. When we do integration, we're integrating into the Jewish calendar and Jewish time and Jewish ritual. That'll probably be all determined by the participant and the guide. How do you think, like, let's say, I mean, you already, you already said, like, you, you had the scenario of how this could look like in the next couple of years. But how do you think this, let's say, um, the Jewish psychedelic therapy would actually, how does it fit into the current, let's say, psychedelic ecosystem that's developing? which is becoming very professional, very also sometimes very clinical, which is sometimes a good thing, sometimes maybe not. But <laughs> how do you see yourself in, in, this, in this context that is just growing? My organization is interested in following the data and research from the clinical model to understand exactly what is happening um, in participants, in the setting, um, the best practices for preparation and integration, for the guiding presence of the guides in the room. Right? We're using and integrating all of that work that is happening. That's first. And also we, uh, myself and my colleagues, we are becoming trained um, as psychedelic assisted therapists through all of these training programs that exist. So that's first. We want to have a high professional standard. Okay. Uh, the second is that we have to do a lot of work around destigmatization, um, both for individuals who wonder, like, okay, well, what are the risks? 
you know, just like me, I don't want my brain to be fried. I don't want my DNA to be disrupted. Sure. Um, so we have to do that kind of education and work also with funders. Uh, funders in the Jewish world uh, are largely like conservative. Like this is something that is uh, very risky. How do we actually do funder education um, to understand what this means and doesn't mean? We then have to experiment. We have to experiment with what is the integration process that we want people to go through? How do we use Jewish ritual, Jewish music, and Jewish language, and also keep the experience open so that people can be themselves and not feel like compelled to um, say something that they, they don't mean, right? But it, to feel open and supported, but use Judaism as a support for that. We then have to start thinking about, well, how are we going to actually be, once we're trained, once we have some like systems in place, where are we actually going to start doing experimentation? And do we need to go to Costa Rica and Jamaica where this is legal to actually have individual and group sessions? Do we need to relocate to Oregon? Um, do, you know, do I need to wait until it gets passed by uh, the state legislature and Governor Newsom in California? Do we need to wait for the current administration? Like, what is the kind of risk that we're willing to take on in order to create a model that is influenced by the therapeutic model, but also is spiritual, entheogenic, and supportive? And I think it will probably look more like spiritual direction and chaplaincy more than therapy. And in some ways, I think to what Bob Jesse was um, thinking about when he first founded the Council for Spiritual Practice about the betterment of well people. And we know that probably no one is as well as we think that they are. You know, in, in the Jewish mystical tradition, we know that all of life exists because of a cataclysmic event of breaking, of rupture. That happens when, when the divine wants relationship with something outside of itself. It withdraws its presence and withdraws all of light into a space where even the divine cannot exist. And that is where we exist. We exist because of that divine withdrawal and because the divine wants to exist alongside us. So there is presence and absence. And we live in absence, but with the knowledge of presence. And so like getting used to paradoxical thinking also is kind of part of this. So how do we live in the absence of truth? How do we live in a world of faith? How do we live with our bodies that um, don't work the ways that we hope that they will? How do we live with the feeling of lack and desire, but sometimes without fulfillment of our most basic to our most aspirational needs? And that I think we're working with. Um, and that's the things that we really want to address most. Okay. So, but don't forget about our new health club shuls that we've Yeah, planned. what's the new health club shul? <laughs> The New Health Club Shul. What is spiritual wellness? What is spiritual health? 
Yeah, this is something that I feel the majority of people is looking into now, maybe even more than before COVID. I mean, it's like a cliche, but but it's I feel this is really what's happening. And I mean, this this book by Sam Harris, like spirituality without religion, basically, I feel like this is what they're longing for. So it's just like a blank spirituality. But I mean, I think the interesting thing is that once you undergo then, for example, a psychedelic experience, like your own religion, (laughs) maybe the, the one you grew up with is just coming back to you like very fast. So it's, and I think it's not possible to have like a blank spirituality that's almost like a, like a beige spirituality where nothing ever happens. It's wonderful for people to feel like there is more to them, themselves and to their world than what they thought before, right? A feeling of transcendence. I think what religion, what religions have over that kind of what you call beige spirituality is lineage, is a place to land. We have leadership. We have language. We have ritual. We have text. We have time. We have a calendar. True. We can, we can use these as supports for people's intuitive internal experiences. Not to... Uh, blanket them over, right? Not to cover them up with something external, but for people to feel like they are part of some larger uh, experience, human experience, and to give them tools. They can choose how much they want to integrate into their lives, of course. But could you imagine if someone who is Jewish, who has no contact with Jewish religion or Jewish spirituality, and they just discover the calendar. They just discover that there are seasons and moods and energies connected to the moon and the sun, connected to the spring and the fall, where they could engage with ideas and, and experiences of rebirth and death, um, with freedom with the renewal, that would be incredibly powerful. You know, maybe people could do this without psychedelics, and of course they are all the time. But if they are undergoing these experiences, what is something that people really could could hold on to, to feel like they could live a life of integration and to have something that is just there for them, that is ready for them to pick up and explore? Yeah, I think that's what, what a lot of people maybe secretly, maybe not so secretly anymore, are, are yearning for on Clubhouse, for example, yeah. <laughs> as yeah. we know, because this is what people really talk about in, in these psychedelic rooms, like young people. And um, which is always interesting to me that it's rather younger people who are actually expressing needs that what, what you just said. And I mean, at, at the same time, I feel like how can you not just be, I mean, have experiences in terms of your religion in a way that, for example, I mean, when I think about this, this Holy communion where you actually think you're marrying Jesus, this one, you, it's like the craziest idea of all ideas, but this is something 
<laughs> that stays with you, right? I mean, and if I'm really honest, my idea of marriage has always been kind of disturbed by the idea of, but I'm married to Jesus already. I mean, I know it sounds crazy to you, but no, but it's like you, you wear these dresses, the Italian girls at my age, they wear long dresses because it's a real marriage. I just had a mini skirt, which wasn't like such a marriage situation. But, but I mean, I, I totally remember these, these Italian girls my age, and they, they were like dressed as a, as a child bride. I mean, if you think about this from today, it's impossible that this would not have like a huge impact on you later in your life. So, I mean, this whole idea of like this beige or grege, it's another expression, uh, spirituality is like, I think we have to give this up. And sometimes I think like even, uh, let's say certain, let's say yoga extremists would like to communicate to you, there's something like being spiritual, but nobody can actually say, I mean, you, you live in California and you know how this works there. So I, I live there too. So I remember like having this um, 360 spirituality, even when you go to Whole Foods. So it's kind of a, it's almost like, like we have to say goodbye to like some, um, yeah, what, what, what would be the word? Like some, um, like, I don't want to say like fake spirituality because some people might really have had experiences that are super non-religious. But I think if you really get into a psychedelic experience, this is all coming back to you, where you come from, what it meant to you, what it suppressed maybe in your life and what it's going to do later in your life. So you were a child bride to Christ. <laughs> you're, you're still <laughs> married right. to Christ, I guess. And, and yeah, how's, like and how's the marriage going? You mean to, yeah, to Christ? Yeah. <laughs> Well, we don't communicate. Okay, that's a kind of marriage. <laughs> that happens. Does it live inside you? Does it come out during psychedelic experiences? Like, how does it, other than just a memory, like, where does it live in you now? Yeah, I mean, I had, like, two major psychedelic experiences, like, two mm -hmm. high doses, like, one LSD and one, the other psilocybin. and. In two experiences, I was in Auschwitz. In two, the two experiences, like the whole time. And you've been there before? Basically. No, I have there. not been there physically not because I was terrified to go. I've been twice. Because, okay, wow, okay, yeah. so I have to go. But I mean, to answer your question, um, the thing is, my LSD experience, which was the very first high-dosed, like, psychedelic experience i went into the experience to answer my question why i wouldn't be married and wouldn't have children that was my question why i would come in so because i could i would never said like wow i think this is totally stupid like because of kind of political or whatever reasons like i just couldn't answer the question so the trip kicked in and it took me like five minutes until I saw myself as a woman pregnant with twins, married to a Jewish man in a Jewish community. And that was the, what's, what's going on, man? 
<laughs> it wasn't sex medicine either. It was really, it was, it was really like the whole time. And you know what's interesting? I mean, I needed to tell you this. Please. Because I, like the person, like the woman, the pregnant woman who was me, um, I asked in the experience, my community, which was a big Jewish community, I always ask them, is it really true that I'm not alone, that I'm supported by people? Is it really true? And then people around me were totally laughing because they would say, she still doesn't believe that she's not alone. She still doesn't believe it. It's so funny. And I kept asking that question, but it was definitely, it wasn't a Catholic context because it's very lonely to be a Catholic, I think. Woman, a Catholic woman. Um, so, but I was married to a Jew. I didn't know how he looked like. I can't, I can't tell you. I just saw he was there. <laughs> so, but I was like pregnant to us and I was in this community. So this is my psychedelic experience. And to be honest, I did this gene test afterwards because I thought like, well, this is coming up and coming up. But it doesn't say, I'm, I don't have anything Jewish in me. Like in terms of, I don't. Yeah, ancestry. I'm ancestry. not related to anybody. Ancestry, yeah. And I imagine, I mean, I imagine that you know, you are obviously aware of like your own family relationship with Nazism and their, their involvement. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. And was there yeah. any ever, like, maybe you don't know or don't know consciously, like messages about Jews or Judaism that were communicated to your parents or to you consciously, subconsciously, unconsciously? You mean in terms of... Um, your grandparents were Nazis. Yeah, yeah they were not. I yeah. mean, everybody was. Okay. Of course, yeah. Were they, yeah, anti- were they, were they anti-Semites? No. Do you know that? It's a good question. I, I don't know for sure. But, but, okay, now that you say that, my mom and my stepdad, we went to Israel when I was 12. And for me, it was the most, I mean, I want to say I was changed after this trip. I, I wasn't really, now that I talk about this the first time, but I think it, it did something to me. Also because we were greeted, I mean, we were Germans and I thought like, they might not really like us there. It was actually nothing but a positive experience, which was incredible to me in the first place. But then also, like my mom, she she was always into Judaism. She was super interested. And recently I found a picture of her, which I, I know that picture for a while, but I suddenly saw what she wear she's wearing a David, a Star of David. She didn't wear a cross. Like she's super Catholic too. So, and I didn't see that. Although I know this picture for a long time, I didn't see that. I was like, what? so, and then she also kept inviting survivors to her house that, I mean, in Germany, you can, you can do that. You can invite people who were in camps or like related to people who were in camps to talk to them about it and kind of, you know, communicate about this. She did it. And so we, we, we had this really strange connection to Israel. Are you surprised by any of this now that you're telling me this? No, and no. This is, <laughs> tell me well, what's I don't, going I, on. That's not for me to tell you, but it's, it, it's to be explored together. This is your stepmother? No, no your mother. Okay, mother. So your stepfather. Yeah, my mother, yeah. 
So we, we, the two of us, his uh-huh. children and me, we went to Israel together as a family and we, we drove through the country with a, a driver. And so it was a full on experience. So you had a profound experience in Israel as you were young and open yes, and yes, yes. Yeah. And exactly. And with 12 years and my parents, they were thinking of moving to Israel to work in a okay, kibbutz so, as So teachers. let's think about that then. That yeah, you've got, <laughs> you have parents who are already excited enough as Germans to go yeah, and yeah. spend time in Israel. Yeah. You spend, how long were you there? A week, two weeks? You were two there weeks, for two, two weeks, weeks driving all around the country. You're hearing conversations uh, with your parents about so much so that they would want to move to Israel and be on a kibbutz, right? That's a like high yeah. level yep. of high, high level, level of Israel. dedication and interest. Yeah. Your mother yeah. starts wearing a star of David while she's there. I think she started that. Okay, so yeah, I think yeah. you have grandparents who are Nazis. You know, your mother and your stepfather are children of Nazis. They, for whatever their motivation, right, they they want to do reconciliation work on their own, like by going to Israel and also inviting Jewish people and survivors into yeah. their home. So you're mm-hmm. in a context, Anne, where there is, I don't want to use the word guilt, but there's a desire of renewal hoping for yeah. forgiveness, sure. right? Like healing um, that they can do, like what can they do? And they're doing a lot. I mean, bringing survivors into their home, that's a big deal. By your mother wearing a piece of jewelry about her dedication and commitment to Judaism and the Jewish people on her body, that is significant. And then you now start because of these psychedelic experiences you're in Auschwitz a couple times you are seeing yeah. and feeling yourself as a Jewish mother you're you as a Jewish mother and and as a Jewish yeah, yeah, and exactly. as a Jewish spouse yeah. and as a Jew yeah as a so, Jew yeah you know totally. you don't need to have any ancestry <laughs> i mean if you had ancestry i think that that would be like a different conversation but to me it seems like right there's something working through you about not only your own relationship to your past as a german but also about what was happening for your mother and stepfather in this kind of reconciliation and healing and for whatever reason it's showing up as direct experiences of the place of murder, death, and genocide with a rabbinic guide. And as you living out your, you could have, you could have lived out your life in a different way. You could have been, you could have been a Jew, right? Just like the cosmic lottery meant that you were a German (laughs) and not a Jew, but it could have gone a different way. And, you know, like, I I imagine and sense that your integration process is coming to understand the terms of that. And 
especially with such a message like you need to help us and we will help you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even, he even said like, um, and we like that you're a little superficial. That's actually what we really like about you. I mean, we like you just for who you are. <laughs> no, but it, it made, it made total sense. It, it, and it wasn't, it was not a second, like, okay, you're a shiksa. And I mean, I wasn't, come on. I wasn't J-date in LA when I lived there. So I know it's crazy. I can't even tell you all these things. <laughs> I'm not surprised by anything at this point. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, with, with, for anything, but you know, how seriously do you take all of this? I mean, look, in, in this whole conversations, I mean, last Friday, I talked to, to Madison about something like that we're planning that's a little bit around that topic. And I mean, when I got on this course with Adriana, like the Faith and Daleks, and then she was like, yeah, and now we have the situation where you have Jews and Daleks and Catholics and Daleks. And I was like, I don't want to be in Catholics and Daleks. Can I please come? And I couldn't. I wasn't allowed to. So, but I mean, <laughs> I was I was in a breakout room with the Catholics. So, and it's great, but I can, I have no connection to Catholicism. I just don't. I mean, I wish I had, but I just because also again, my mother got a divorce, so I was kind of the black sheep because you know the whole thing. Like your parents are not married for a hundred years, so and um, I was never. A, you could say attracted to Catholicism because I, I did, it didn't make me feel good. So, and the moment there's a Jew somewhere, I'm like, I'm going there. So, because I'm just enjoying the company. And I was even in an, an Orthodox as an extra in the show as a Hasidic woman. Yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> I know. It's becoming, I can't talk to nobody about this really. Here I am for you. Yeah, you're the person. But, you know, and it's like, it's all up to you about what to do with it. I mean, you could, you could do nothing. You could do exactly what you're doing yeah. and that would be enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, the question is like, how much more meaning do you want to make out of that? Like, so th you know, think about my experience. I had this yeah. brain opening electricity shock that happened when I was 15. And I was like, I have to wear a yarmulke. I have to do, like, how could I not do this now? Yeah. I felt compelled. Yeah. You know, and... Compelled, I, yeah. yeah, that's, I that's felt the compelled. word. Yeah. And so, you know, you didn't, like, have these experiences say, I'm knocking 12 times. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, in Israel back then, when my parents kind of, they once, I think at one point they started to talk about how this could look like if they would move to a, a, a kibbutz. And, and I was like, oh, I can go to the army then. <laughs> Everybody was trying not to go there. And then later on, I was like, oh, I could go to Mossad also because they all look so good looking and like totally crazy ideas. Yeah, crazy ideas. And I mean, the thing is, to be honest, they only didn't do this because... They thought, well, I come from a divorced family. My, my stepdad, he had lost his wife in an accident. So they didn't want to take us out of Germany, kind of to, you know. But honestly, until today, I think it would have been a really good idea to, to go there just 
to start a completely new life. I mean, it's like to start fresh, kind of. So, and um, I think one thing that's certainly coming out of this is to just really kind of start a conversation again around, let's say, the Holocaust and psychedelic treatment, like with you, with Rachel, with yeah. Madison, to bring this, uh, first of all, to the world, but also to the next generation of people who might, and a couple of friends, Jewish friends I have, who are in their 30s, still suffering from depression because of exactly that kind of epigenetic trauma. So, but I mean, which I, I heard of maybe like two years ago, the first time. So I think this is one thing that is completely coming out of this, this, in, this engagement and the new health club shuls, of course. And I'd also, you know, I'd also want, I know that your focus for obvious reasons is about, um, you know, trauma and the lives, the lives of Eastern European, European, Eastern European Jews, although, you know, Italian Jews, Greek Jews, right? Yeah, They're all, pa- all part of it. Mm-hmm. And right there is, there is also the lives and the stories and the traumas of Sephardic, Mizrahi, Eastern Ethiopian <laughs> Jewish people, because the Holocaust, I think, you know, takes up so much room as it, it, it should, it, it's yeah. a, as on a massive yeah. scale. Mm-hmm. Sure. And there sure. are also the, you know, the displacement, the forced conversions, the, you know, the aggression, the microaggression, whatever of Jews from Arab lands, Jews from North Africa, um, Ethiopian, other, other Jewish stories um, of trauma, displacement, violence, et cetera, that I also want to make room for. So there's that too, just in there for me. Um, we usually don't. And, and now, at least in you know, what I'm thinking about in this country right now is like, you know that there are black Jews, there are Jews of color, but black Jews, they are Jewish. First of all, they came here they were brought here as slaves and in a lot of cases their slave owners were jewish and then the children of that relationship between jewish slave owner and black slave then has black jewish children and so then the people who have been part of these families right they've been jewish since they <laughs> since they came here and now starting to understand their own relationship to Judaism and their own relationship to their enslavement. And then knowing that they're only Jewish because (laughs) of consensual or non-consensual relationships between slave and slave owner, right? That's a whole other level of trauma and experience that we've barely been able to start understanding. So yeah. Yeah. Isn't that like uh, Sammy Davis Jr., right? Sammy converted uh, later in life. Oh, okay, but, okay. Um, you know, there are many more. I mean, and there are lots of people who are doing lots of work um, mm-hmm. about, you know, the early African-American communities, but people who have not converted, but have, you know, they have been Jewish for a long time, but have for whatever reason, you know, we get things like, well, you're not Jewish because you're not white or you're not Jewish because you're, yeah, right. You're just not Jewish or et cetera. Like the fact that Jews of color are now 
starting to have power. They're starting to have resources. They're starting to be leadership opportunities and just involvement and investment. That's the current need. But the needs underneath that are about understanding, wrestling with, grappling with the very root of that identity. And that then I think takes more than just resources. That takes profound spiritual and emotional work. So there's a lot to do, I guess, is what we're saying. Mm. Thank you, Zach. (laughs) What can I say? This is just the beginning of a very long conversation, but it was totally fascinating as I expected to be. Um, And I'm very happy you were on the show and I'm sure there will be other episodes very soon with your first days of psychedelic therapy uh, as a psychedelic therapist I meant. please god that should happen one day soon not yet but soon well thank you and um again like i think this is just episode one <laughs> <laughs> if people are interested in knowing more they can uh go to uh, my organization's website which is uh, the organization is called Shefa, and the website is Shefa S H E F A Flow ShefaFlow.org. And if mm-hmm. people are are interested in hearing more conversations and speakers, um, everyone is invited to the Jewish Psychedelic Summit May second and third. It's happening all online. They can go to JewishPsychedelicSummit.org. And check out our two days of panels and speakers and and community. We'd love to see people there and, and see what happens afterwards. And you have incredible guests like um, Rick Doblin, Julie Holland. You created a conference with Madison Margolin and Natalie Ginsberg, right? Yeah. You, our, the three of you. Our co-founders, yes. Co-founders, okay. <laughs> but the... Um, the guests and the speakers are really incredible. So, and it's interesting how you already see on the, if you click on speakers already, like it gives you a first impression, what kind of community is created, right? Or is coming out of this. Researchers, therapists, mystics, uh, rabbis. Uh, all together. Yeah, everyone, everyone all together. You know, there's so much blessing that exists in the world, but sometimes you have to create a container in order to see it and feel it. So that's yeah, what we're doing. That's right. Perfect. We all look forward to the conference and I will think about this a lot. You should. All right. Ciao. Have a good day. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a New Health Club now, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.